0: Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the non-profit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. Here's something to note if you live in Northern California. This upcoming Saturday, July 22nd, the Film Noir Foundation is partnering with Sacramento's California Museum to present its Light and Noir Film Festival at the Historic Crest Theatre in downtown Sacramento on K Street at 10th from 5 to 10 p.m. The event will include screenings of legendary director Billy Wilder's noir classics Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard both introduced by FNF president and founder Eddie Muller. Between films, there'll be a Q&A with Eddie exploring the contributions of Wilder, a refugee from Nazi persecution, whose achievements helped define the film noir genre. The Light & Noir Film Festival is an extension of the California Museum's installation of the traveling exhibit Light & Noir, Exiles and Émigrés in Hollywood, 1933-1950, to which is now on display. Before heading to the movies on Saturday, stop by the museum, located on 10th at O, just a few blocks from the theater, to see the exhibition. And between three and four, Eddie Muller will be available to sign books. Sacramento is the place to be this Saturday. And now let's talk with our guest for this month. guest this month is Michael Cronenberg. He is a graphic designer and the art director of the Film Noir Foundation's Noir City e-magazine and the Noir City Annual, as well as the designer of the festival program for each year's flagship Noir City Film Festival in San Francisco. He also designed the packaging for the DVD and Blu-ray of the FNF's restorations of Too Late for Tears and Woman on the Run, which were both released by Flickr Alley. He also manages the website for back issues of the Noir City e-magazine, which are available for purchase at noircitymag.com. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you, guy. Great to have you on with us. So let's get started with uh, all the design work that you have done and are doing for the Film Noir Foundation. So uh, let's go back to the beginning, I guess. Uh, tell us about how you first got started working with Eddie Muller and with the FNF.
1: Well, I was I was aware of uh, the film war foundation before I was working for them uh, I subscribed to the email uh, newsletter that they sent out just to keep up up to date about about things because I, I was interested in film more and I also had Eddie's book uh, the art of more and he emailed uh, assuming that at that time he was he was writing the emails he emailed that they were looking for a graphic designer to do the uh, noir city sentinel which was the newsletter that was the quarterly newsletter for the film War foundation and he listed quite a few specific things that he needed a designer to do and i i met all of the, the criteria for that and i said do oh, i really want this job you know i'd love to do this because i'd love to get in on this about film war and and i you know i'd seen the website and i was you know really impressed and i was impressed with you know, the writing and all the work that Eddie did. So I pretty much bugged the hell out of him. <laughs> and I mean, I made a total pest of myself and um, just kept bugging him about it. And I even at one point said to him, if you don't hire me, it's going to be, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. <laughs> I, I was, I didn't I want to do anything to get in on this. And uh, he, I guess I, I was going up against some either some designers or a design firm over on the West Coast. And basically what Eddie, had, Eddie did was he, he had me take a test, which is something I had never done for a job before, but he sent me uh, an article that he wrote uh, about the different versions of uh, To Have and Have Not that were filmed, uh, along with some photos. And he gave me the specs, the general specs for the newsletter. And asked me to come up with uh, a layout. And I said, well, i got to knock it out of the park with this. So I ended up doing like three completely different designs for him and sending it to him within like two hours, all three designs. So he was impressed, and, and, and I ended up getting the job. And, you know, we in the end, we, we ended up hitting it off and becoming friends because we had a lot in common.
0: So he didn't take your "you're going to regret this for the rest of your life" as like a noir type. <laughs>
1: a I wonder anything. He, I assume <laughs> he had to wonder about me when I, when right. I wrote him that. You know, it's like, uh oh, who is this guy? But uh, you know, I, I think he knows. He, he, in the end, I guess he he trusted me, and uh, you know, right. he was impressed. But it's uh, it, it's slightly embarrassing, but it just shows how. How much I wanted that job.
0: Yeah, the persistence pays off, and you've been doing other work with Eddie as well on his uh, self-publishing Blackpool Productions. Um, so tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, uh, Eddie started his own kind of publishing firm, uh, Blackpool Productions, and uh, the first book that we did was Philippe gognier's you know, very different and unusual biography of David Goodis. The the more writer. And uh, we worked on that together along with Darl Sparks. Also, Darl is is pretty much a key part of the team for Blackpool Productions as she is the copy editor and she checks the facts on things and and, and helps with the business end of it. And uh, so we put out that book. I designed the good, goodest book. And then after that, uh, Eddie wrote the his Gun Crazy book, um, which is i believe i think it's being sold even on the tcm website now too but uh we worked on that the three of us worked on that together and i designed that and um the other thing the third thing is uh, eddie put together scans of his belgian film war posters and he wanted to make kind of a postcard like a card set out of that so i worked on that and designed that for him and each card has a uh, Kind of a commentary uh, about the film on the back from Eddie. It's a really nice set. And since it was Belgian, uh, we decided, and I decided to do the packaging. We designed the packaging so, like a Belgian chocolate. So, when you get it, it's the wrapping is all like uh, in the tradition of Belgian chocolates with the same kind of font. And all of this is on blackpoolproductions.com, which is a website. That I uh I designed and I also maintain. So you can purchase all of that stuff uh through PayPal on those websites. On that website, I'm sorry.
0: As we record this is a little earlier when, when we release this podcast, Gun Crazy will have just shown on Noir Alley, uh hosted by Eddie Muller on Turner Classic Movies. Um so he's gonna be talking a lot about stuff from his book, I think this week. They're posting clips from the book. Um, which is, which is really tremendous uh, and incredible history of how that film was produced and the realities of Hollywood at that time. And a lot of it is about how the blacklist affected things, which was very interesting as well with Dalton Trumbo, the writer there, one of the writers on the, on the movie. So with, uh, continuing with our theme of the design for the Film Noir Foundation, tell us a bit about the process of designing each of the issues of the Noir City e-magazine in terms of how you're working with the authors and the editors as well.
1: You know, I did start out working on it when it was a newsletter. Um and it was a basically, you know, a very short quick newsletter um and I wanted to go ahead and expand it, make it into a magazine. So Eddie agreed and so I went ahead and redesigned it into this kind of full-fledged magazine of, you know, about 75 pages. Although we're getting pretty high on page count now. But anyways, the way it works and the way the production works is it is is the editor-in-chief, publisher, of course, and he uh, decides like what articles or what authors, what writers are going to write what pieces and kind of assign stuff to different writers or ask writers what they want to write about. And he is the one who puts together what will be in each issue. And Steve Cronenberg, my brother, who's managing editor of the... Uh, classic side of the, of the noir articles. And then Vince Keenan, who is the editor of the, uh, contemporary noir stuff. Uh, they both work with the authors, uh, of the articles and getting them done and maybe answering questions and so forth. And also wrangling different, different writers. But in the end, the articles will then filter through to Eddie. Eddie will then edit them, um, for style and such, uh, and then they go to Daryl Sparks, who does all the copy editing, and she will do all the fact-checking. And then from there, they go to me. And what I do is I'll read each article, and um, I'll start searching for images, uh, mainly online. Uh, and I'll just – I really will dig, and, and Eddie knows – Somewhat amazed at some of the stuff that I'm able to find, but I'm able to dig as much as I can for, and I really find a lot more than I ever use. Uh, because I just, as a designer, I want to be able to have as much available as far as images. Uh, it helps my creativity and it just gives me a choice. And also, I've got a really extensive backlog of different things to use for future issues. But basically, what I'll do is I'll, I'll search. And find as much as I can related to it, whether it's actors, actresses, uh, film posters, uh, lobby cards, art, uh, images from, uh, you know, maybe photos of cinematographers, directors, so forth, anything that I can that will relate in some way. And usually by the time I'm, I'm looking at all those images and I've collected all those images, I'm usually able to start to come up with an idea for how I'm going to do what we call a splash page, which is, you know, that first page that contains the art and the headline for the article. And, uh, we are now, uh, with this last issue, we've changed the format and that we're doing double page spreads for those, uh, for those splash pages, for the openers, for the articles, which allows me a lot more creativity, uh, as you can imagine. I mean, instead of just a vertical one page, piece of art that I'm creating, uh, I can now expand out to two pages and it just gives me a lot more breathing room as an artist to go ahead and come up with things and be more creative. So I usually put that together and it's a combination of, um, Photoshop, uh, a lot of Photoshop work. Um, and I designed the actual magazine using InDesign, which is a layout program. So the combination of those two is how I come up with the the splash pages and then, you know, as I'm then I'll lay out the article um, and I like to make sure that all the images that I use the article is talking about it on that page. So if there's a story about a movie with Barbara Stanwyck and they're specifically talking about a, a certain scene with Barbara Stanwyck, I want to make sure that on that page as the person's reading it, they're looking at scene from that part that part of the movie and and a scene from that movie so um i try to be aware of that um also don't try to bombard everybody with with images tons of images on the page give it some breathing room and uh, basically that's how the features are done Uh, of course we have different departments too that are written by different people uh with movie reviews and dvd reviews. Uh, Vince has a really interesting column that I know he spoke to you about where he kind of gives these really cool snippet news briefs in a very old retro style fashion about different books and movies and TV shows and things like that. So really, the magazine has a lot of different uh, working elements, Um, and I've tried to design each of those departments to be specific for what they're about, but also have some kind of cohesion to it too. I mean it's not uh some scatterbrain crazy thing that's all over the place either. And then the other thing that I enjoy doing that we work on and is uh the real life noir, which is uh a lot of times it's something that I find, uh like I'll find some maybe specific story about a uh, hold up or a murder mystery or something like that. And um, I'll design that in Photoshop and and, in design like a police blotter uh, and actually age the photos and weather the photos and give them shadows and put paper clips on there and notes. And basically Eddie will write the story and it reads almost like in a way like a comic book page, like a sequential comic book page because of all the different elements and and little captions that are attached to it uh, and go with it. Uh, the last one um, we actually expanded in this past issue, uh, Donna Lethal wrote an entire feature that we, was a real-life noir about uh, the tiger woman, which was a murder case uh, back in the early part of the ni- uh, 20th century. Um, so anyways, there, those, those are a lot of fun to do. I enjoy those.
0: And the another thing you've incorporated in recent years, I guess I don't remember exactly when it started, was there are multimedia clips as well. Sometimes there are clips from the movies that are being discussed or the trailers, even maybe some interview clips or, or some music as well. So, what's been your approach for figuring out when you want to put those in or like finding clips that are of good enough quality kind of to make it worth it to link to those?
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that is really kind of a, one of the main parts of. of- the Moore city magazine and it was something that was specific that we decided to incorporate into it when we changed over from a newsletter to a to a magazine uh, the newsletter had uh elements that because of, of it being a pdf that was delivered to people and they would read it on their computer it had things that were links that you could go to but we decided to add you know this kind of audio or you know add film clips and trailers so basically what i'm doing is a- after i've designed the whole issue it's usually the, one of the last things i do and i'll go from article to article and i'll look for trailers film clips um and even full movies that relate to uh the article um if it's a specific scene that i'm showing a, f- a still from a specific scene sometimes I'll get lucky enough to search and I'll actually find a clip from that scene. Uh, I try to make sure that we got at least a trailer to show. Um, that's not always available. Um, but most of the time there is, I'm able to find movies, whole movies so that, um, if somebody wants to watch this movie it's specifically really for the, some of these more, um, these noirs that have fallen into the public domain, you can find them on YouTube. You can find the entire movie. So it gives somebody a chance, hopefully somebody a chance to, they're reading it, the article, and they decide, wow, I really want to see this. Well, guess what? Here's a link and you can actually watch it. What we did in the music issue, which was a lot of fun, was, um, and that music issue was great. I enjoyed doing that because I wanted to do it, uh, the cover, like the old Rolling Stone, which was, used to be a, a, a double fold, Uh, tabloid newspaper. And so I designed uh, all the elements for Noir City's covers as a Rolling Stone cover. And all the music, all of the articles were pretty much about music. So I was able to find music clips and have music clips attached to the images uh, that were in each piece. So hopefully... If somebody was reading this article, they could actually listen to the music that was being discussed in, in, in the article. The same thing with, um, as far as the cover goes, with the, the TV issue. I, I really wanted to do our uh, special warrant TV issue um, and make the cover like a TV guy cover. And that was a lot of fun to do. I, You know, it, you can probably tell all of this is, is, is a gas to do. I, I really had a lot of fun doing it. The comic book issue, I wanted to do it like a comic book cover. So... It's it's really great for, for me because it, it lets me, and Eddie, he, he trusts me, and he, he lets me pretty much uh, be as creative as I want to be. And uh, one last thing w- really good about it, what's great about Eddie is is that, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but he's a really talented graphic designer. And um, he was doing the Noir City Sentinel uh, before I took it over. He was the one who was laying it out. And what's great is is that Eddie's got such a good eye that I trust him. And when he looks at something and he says, oh, it, I do something and he says, oh, it needs this or it needs that, or this isn't working, maybe fix this or fix that, something about the font or whatever, um, it's really great. And it's helped me, I think it's helped me become a better graphic designer. Those mob fools want you gone so they can get back to the way things were. But I know the truth. There's no going back. You've changed things forever. Then why do you want to kill me?
0: (laughs) I I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Go back to ripping off mob dealers? No, 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 no. you, you complete me. So as you just mentioned, there was the Noir City Comics issue, which was issue number 14, spring of 2015. Uh, with several great articles about the overlap or influence back and forth between comics and film noir. So let's talk about your article from that issue, which is called Batman in the 70s, First Rebirth of the Bat. So take us through the timeline of how the character of Batman had moved away from his noir-style origins, but then came back to that in the 1970s. That's kind of the main theme of your article, which also came from, that's an adaptation from your book, right, that you co-wrote, which is called The Bat Cave Companion.
1: Right. Yeah. I wrote that with Michael Yuri Um, and, and the book just as a little background is that the book is, is two different. It covers two different segments of Batman's history. Um, Michael Urey wrote about the 1960s. Um, and a lot about the Batman TV show. And I wrote about the 19, through the 1970s, which was when Batman kind of returned to his darker roots, which were the pulps back in the late 30s. So. The article is, uh, yeah, an adaptation. Um, Some things changed, but I kind of rewrote some things. But uh, basically what happened to the character of Batman was, after the early 40s, he became less dark and uh, went from a creature of the night, which is what he essentially was in the beginning. Uh, Bill Finger and Bob Kane created him, and Bill Finger... Mostly created him and and wrote the stories and he basically based um, Batman on the Shadow uh, and uh, Batman carried a gun and killed people in his first year before Robin came along. Those are still interesting stories. That first year of Batman, which my son wrote uh, the sidebar in uh, New City for my article about, it, because that those stories still hold up really well because they've got kind of that dark noirish element to them. But as the 40s went on, um, and comics gained popularity, and pulp started to die away. And it was seen, it seemed to the publishers of National Periodical Publications, which is what DC Comics was called back then, that the appeal of these comics were, although widespread, was mostly to kids, and that Batman needed to be a role model. And those darker elements, specifically, that he killed people, that he carried a gun, that his main villains like the Joker who killed people at a crazy rate at the beginning, no longer would kill people. He became more of a clown and, and Batman became more of a kind of like a, maybe the marshal in the town you know a cop on the beat practically in a costume was he more of a um,
0: like a detective at that time Did they kind of emphasis? no that he didn't
1: his, his well like, his that that was even starting to fall fall away in the okay. 40s he was in the 40s he was but as and 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 as you went through the 50s and 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 then in the early 60s things got really crazy and a science fiction element was added to batman and he was having these crazy other world adventures uh and he was being mutated in different ways like the zebra batman the invisible batman um the batman from planet x and you know all kinds of crazy stuff and at that point dc decided to uh put a halt on things because the the circulation numbers were really going down at that point and this is probably 1962 63 and in 1964 dc decided to redo batman and what they did was um although they didn't darken him too much and the stories were still fairly light they made him more of a detective robin was still around so this is 1964, and at this time was when William Dozier, who was the producer of the Batman TV show, um, picked up Batman comics, and uh, the Batman TV show took over, and of course it was a sensation. It was an incredible sensation. I mean, I was pretty much too young to remember it at the time, but um, it was there was a real Batman craze. I was going through this country. It was insane. And But it only lasted a short time, because the show only lasted three seasons, and it really was only highly rated in its first season. And this, the, the ratings started to dip after that. But it had an effect on the comic books, and the comic books took on this camp tone. And um, a lot of comic books did, in fact, because... You know, it's a copycat business, and everybody's looking for you know what's successful. And the Batman TV show was successful. The merchandising was very successful. The the circulation for Batman comics went crazy, Um, and uh, that campy tone seemed to carry over into everything. It was at least as the series went away and as it was canceled and the comic books uh, circulation started to drop Um, and the people who were into that the comics because of the TV show when they fell away and the true comic book fans who had always been reading the the, the stories and a lot of them who remember Batman or wanted Batman to go back to the way he was, you know, started writing into to the DC editors saying, you know, Hey, look, you know, why can't Batman be the way he was back? And, you know, the 30s and the early 40s and this is about 1969 about 1970 and uh, there was almost a trend of nostalgia going on it during that time um, also when there was a newspaper story written about a comic books or anything about comic books and specifically about Batman if there was a magazine story about it if somebody on the news was talking about it it was always pow zowie you know it was always a reference to the Batman TV show, and I, being a kid who was very young in in the early '70s, and loved Batman, um, and wanted Batman to be more of a, a dark night detective, Avenger, Dark Knight, Dark Avenger of the night, and so forth, um, I really hated all that. Um, I hated that kind of baggage that the that comic books. And Batman had. So, um, Neil Adams, who is, uh, is an artist, an excellent artist, uh, back in the early in the late 60s, who came over, who was the um, newspaper strip artist for Ben Casey, which was a very popular newspaper stripper. And, um, he came over and decided to do comics because he loved comics. And he wanted to do Batman. And he wanted to return Batman back to the way he was in the late 30s. And nobody at DC would allow him to do it. And as I wrote in my article, um, he kind of did it in this subterfuge way by he couldn't get on the regular Batman comic books. So he got on the Batman team-up comic book, which was called Brave and the Bold. And he just, in his own subtle way, started drawing Batman differently. His style was very realistic and very gritty. And he drew Batman very realistic and very gritty. And all the scenes were done at night and shadowy. Um, So fans started to notice it and wrote in at uh, an alarming rate for for DC's public, for the the editors and the publisher. And they started to take notice. And um, Neil Adams was, was was very popular not only as a Batman artist, but for all of DC. And he became like the main cover artist for DC. And he eventually got his opportunity to um, to get into the into the main Batman books, and he was teamed up with writer Denny O'Neil, who also had that same feeling that he wanted to bring Batman back to his pulp roots. So he had the perfect team of these two guys um, who had the same agenda for Batman, and that basically started in 1970. Um, and that in 1971 was when I was a kid was when I really started getting into comic books as a collector and I picked up, um, one of their, one of their comics, uh, one of their Batman comics and it it really changed me. It changed my life because I saw Neil Adams art and it's like, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen anybody draw Batman or any other comic book like this. And I kind of decided I wanted to be an artist at that point. Um, so that started there, and it, and so you can think about 1970 is basically the time that the Batman that everybody knows now, and the Chris Nolan movies helped a lot, but the Batman that you see in the comic books now is based on that Batman from 1970. Um, were those guys, so, uh,
0: O'Neill and Adams, were they uh, film noir fans, or do you know if they ever cited influence from the old shadowy movies from...
1: 40s. I know Neil. I know Neil Adams did, and and Adams, because I spoke, you know, I I interviewed both of them at length, and I didn't ask them anything specifically about film war, But when I I went and visited Neil Adams and spoke to him at his at his studio, he talked about a lot of different movies, and I know he talked about a couple of Noirs. He also talked about horror movies too, in that uh, his the way he drew Batman and his cape was influenced by Christopher Lee and the Hammer films, um, but. I think all, almost all comic book artists are influenced by film um, in some way or another. And um, I think their main influence was, at least I should say, the main influence for Denny O'Neill, the writer, were the pulps, um, were those, the shadow pulps um, from back in the day. Um, but... Uh, I, I've got to think that they were also influenced by film. There's even one one of, the, one of those stories that I'm talking about that they did in the early '70s. Um, Orson Welles. There's a kind of a fictionalized version of Orson Welles' uh, Kane. Um, his Charles Foster Kane, like much older. <clears throat> And you know it's loosely based on Cain, in one of those stories. So those guys, I think, I think movies were always kind of prevalent, in as far as their influence went.
0: And you mentioned also the recent movie that was directed by Christopher Nolan, the Batman Begins, Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises. And in your article, you identified a few story elements that O'Neill and Adams, I guess. Um, introduced into the Batman comics which still survive today in those movies and other comics so showing their influence in particular um you mentioned uh Ra's al Ghul one of the villains right. who is the villain of Batman begins and um uh the Arkham Asylum which shows up in every Batman movie now and all the the video games as well uh where all the all the villains are sent to uh inevitably escape from And, um, in particular, you talked a lot in your article as well about how O'Neill and Adams not just brought, how they brought Batman back to his darker roots, but also the Joker, as you mentioned earlier, who started off initially, the very beginning of the comics as a crazy homicidal maniac, but then became much more of a kind of a clown later. But O'Neill and Adams brought him back as this very vicious, um killer but they also introduced this dynamic between them right as you write about how the Joker always sees Batman as the opposite side of himself this kind of relationship between them that they established
1: right uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen that the idea that um, they they almost need each other specifically the Joker needs Batman to that's why he is that's why he exists uh to be batman's greatest foil um that that's his inspiration because they are the opposite sides of the coin they're 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 just the complete opposite you know i mean the joker is you know chaos and and murder and mayhem and batman is all about order and justice and um, and also he won't kill you know that's his his, his credo is that he he'll, he'll never kill um so I cited in that article the first time that I had ever seen that element of that the Joker needed the Bat- Batman to exist. And that was in that, that issue that Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams uh, did called The Joker's Five-Way Revenge, uh, which was in 1973. And uh, it was repeated in The Dark Knight in that scene in the interrogation room where uh, basically the Joker tells Batman, you know, I, I need you. Uh, O'Neill and Adams kind of touched on that, and, it, and it's it's still talked about. That. And so that's why I like I said earlier that I think what they started in 1970 with the character is still going on now. Um, there's is still going on now, and Nolan and um, and I guess Warner Brothers paid both O'Neill and Adams money for all three films because of their influence, which was not in their contract to do that. And I thought that was something great. Yeah. That is an amazing detail that seeing that in the article, I'd never seen that before. Um, The other thing, the other, just one other thing, a guy that I wanted to mention was that the reason I kind of wanted to do the article. And one of the reasons I wanted to do the book and write this book was that, um, I'm a fan of, of Frank Miller's work. Um, and I, I love his Daredevil, his work in Daredevil, but he did the Dark Knight Returns, which uh, got a lot of press in 1986 when it came out. There was an article in The New York Times about it. There was an article in Rolling Stone about it. I'll give it the I'll give that series and him credit in that all of a sudden, the mainstream press was covering the character, and they weren't talking about the camp side of it all. But they were giving him credit as saying, well, here's Batman as this, you know, dark, sinister character. He's not Adam West anymore and, and so forth. And, and although I'm not... I'm not saying anything against against Frank Miller. I'm not saying that he he was taking the credit and said he did it, but the press was giving him credit as if he was the one that did it and and it really it was and it was it was it was Neil Adams to start with but it was it was Denny O'Neill and, and Neil Adams who really kind of got the ball rolling uh many years before and uh just just that a lot of people did didn't know about it because comics just weren't getting that kind of mainstream press uh and the Dark Knight Returns did. That said his 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 he did a uh, three three issue series called Batman Year One about Batman's first year which is some great some some of the best noir comics I I've, I've ever seen. And the only reason that Eddie and I didn't list it in our top 10 was that Jake Hinkson wrote a really nice feature in the comics issue all about that uh, that specific series.
0: Yeah, that was a very interesting article as well. And you just mentioned the uh, top 10 greatest noir comics that you and Eddie put together for that same noir city comics issue. So can you just tell us briefly about uh, the ones you picked out for that list? It was
1: uh, four of the 10
0: that you picked out.
1: Right. Um, Yeah. um, Yeah. So Eddie and I kind of split it up and we kind of mutually agreed which ones we talk about. We agreed on all all 10 of those, of course. But I picked uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil he brought in uh a definite noir sensibility now there was somebody you, you asked about denny o'neill and neil adams if they were interested if they were influenced by Fillmore, uh frank miller was and it you can see it in this in in the series during that time because uh he brings in all kinds of stuff from different different wars uh stuff from in a lonely place stuff from Maltese falcon uh out of the past uh, it's a really fascinating read if you can if you can get a collected edition of it which there are a number of them out there and uh you know he brought in all kinds of stuff he brought in like catholic guilt and uh heartache and uh he daredevil uh his first love is a is a, is a greek woman who he met in college and her father is murdered in front of her and she ends up becoming a work a hired assassin and he has to face off against her. and you know Daredevil has his own foil in those comics similar to The Joker who's a crazed killer called uh, Bullseye. So I love those stories. I read those um, in high school and uh, towards the beginning of college. Um, and I, I still love them. I still go back and reread them often. Um, the other one, the other, another entry of mine was The Killing Joke, which is the retelling of the Joker's origin. Uh, and basically, it's, it's written by Alan Moore, drawn by Brian Boland. Beautiful art. The art is exquisite. It's a 48-page story, and Brian Boland, who drew it, it took him two years to work on it. So it was something that was, uh, he put a lot into. Um, and Alan Moore's story is great. Uh, and it's a fascinating read to read about how the Joker came to be, and it is, and even the Joker mentions it, it is like one terrible, one bad day. Somebody has one horrifically terrible day, and it's just it's the definition of noir, what happens to the Joker going from this kind of failed comedian to going to this twisted, crazed killer. It's a quick read it's really well written and i think it's like a comic masterpiece uh the other one another one i picked was the road to perdition which is written by max allen collins uh which is about a hitman who is uh double-crossed and how he's going across the country during the depression with his uh with his son uh, it's loosely based on uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, which was a famous Japanese uh, comic book, uh, and of course became the really terrific movie um, by Sam Mendes, and it had Tom Hanks, uh, Jude Law, and uh, Paul Newman in it, and it's very faithful to um, to the comic book story. So if uh, if anybody's seen. The movie and enjoyed the movie, I highly recommend trying to pick that up. It's it's in print. And I guess my other choice was um, Darwin Cook's uh, Richard uh, Parker adaptations, which are just phenomenal. Uh, I, I can't recommend uh, those enough to people. Those are also still in print. He actually started working on them uh, along with Donald Westlake. I guess Westlake was really impressed with Darwin Cook's work um his writing and his art darwin cook has unfortunately passed away uh about a year ago but his 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 work was phenomenal and he worked with westlake and westlake actually gave him permission to go ahead and use the name parker which is something that he didn't do for the film adaptations uh Um, It just kind of showed you the trust and how much uh, Westlake enjoyed what uh, Darwin Cook was doing. So I recommend anybody to pick that anybody should pick up. um, Even if you're not a Westlake fan or you're not a Parker fan, you will become a Parker fan. You'll want to read the novels that Westlake wrote after seeing after reading these. Uh, They're all available. Those are great. So those were those were my choices.
0: And with uh, The Killing Joke, I can mention that that was also just recently uh, made into a movie, an animated movie, as part of the Batman animated series that's been around for the last 25 years or so, where Mark Hamill does the voice of the Joker, of Mark Hamill of, of course, Luke Skywalker Star Wars fame, does a magnificent job voicing this crazy character. And uh, we have a bit of audio from the early 90s movie Mask of the Phantasm that we can hear right now to wrap this segment up.
1: Everybody home? <laughs> Listen, Boopsy, even though you never call and never write, I still got a soft spot for you. So I'm sending you a fun gift, airmail. And there's no use jumping out the window this time, toots. The plane of the future is going to make you history.
0: hello hello operator i believe my party's been
1: disconnected
0: (laughs) all right let's move on to a little bit here of talking about the big comic book movies today not so much in a film noir sense but in a sense that i think possibly and maybe this is my own little crazy theory that ties them in with classic movies and the way classic Hollywood operated. And my theory on this, and I want to get your take on this as well, Michael is that for Marvel in particular, which has had the most success with their series that's ongoing now of all their movies tied together as they call it Marvel cinematic universe. The person who's been overall in charge of that entire operation is Kevin Feige, who is the head of Marvel Marvel's movie division so he is the overall producer of all of those movies. And he is essentially the person who's tying them all together and overseeing all of them with different directors, writers, actors, etc. And what the way I think he's approaching it, or the way at least I think of it is, I think he has taken the approach where he is kind of like an old Hollywood studio boss, like a Jack Warner or a Daryl Zanuck or the old studio bosses who exercised very extreme control over everyone who worked for them, directors, actors, writers, everybody who was under contract to them, molding the images of the actors in particular and slotting them into different movies and controlling their careers. I don't think... I mean, Feige doesn't do that with the actors he works with. I mean, nobody has that much control over the people they work with today. Um, But I think he is taking that same approach with the characters that he has in Marvel. Like, I think he's saying, okay, Incredible Hulk, well, we had the lead movie we had the movie where you were the lead character and it kind of did okay but wasn't really that big so now i'm going to change and you're going to be a supporting character now right so he was a supporting character in the avengers and in uh the two avengers movies and now he's going to be the next thor movie so and then he's controlling okay black widow you're going to be here and there now let's bring up the guardians of the galaxy and introduce them to everyone so i think he's taking the approach of these characters are under contract to me and i'm going to control their image And I think that's why – that's part of why he has been able to have success, rather, with these movies Um, because I think there is a consistent path that all of them are taking in some sense, that they're all connected. There is one person in charge of everything. So do you think that's been a key to his approach or do you think that's
1: kind of how he's approaching things? I think that's how he's approaching things. And I think my – the way I look at it, and I'm such a comic book person, is I see him being kind of like Stanley. Stanley, in the early days of Marvel, 60s um, through the 60s, maybe into the maybe the early 70s, but mainly the, the, the 60s, was he decided, very different from DC, was that I'm going to create the Marvel Universe. And in my Marvel Universe, the characters know one another. They're going to interweave with one another in their stories. And there's going to be a consistency in the way they act with each other and Who likes who, who doesn't like who? We're going to have some of these, some of them pitted against one another and jealousies and so forth. You know, um, Peter Parker's Spider Man is in New York City. He works at the Daily Bugle, which he can see the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four are from the Daily Bugle. Um, Daredevil is in Hell's Kitchen. You know, Luke Cage. And daredevil kind of know one another I, mean, I know i'm getting it now into marvel tv but um even in the avengers uh you know the roster of the avengers was always this interesting thing in the comics it's like who was in who was out who was going to be on the avengers in the roster of the avengers and who wasn't going to be in the roster of the avengers uh you know who was going solo um, the whole idea that all of these things weave together in a consistency among in these comics—that was all the brainchild of of Stanley, uh, which was brilliant because it 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 created a soap opera in a way for all these backstories for all of these characters because they had these personalities that intermingled with one another. Um, and there were love affairs, or fights, or team ups, or whatever. Um, you just never knew what you were going to get, but you always knew that you ne- that Spider Man could pop up in this book, or Thor could pop up in this book, or Captain America was going to go and help. Um, you know, Daredevil wrangle the Hulk, who's out of control in Hell's Kitchen, or something like that. So um, I agree with you about what you're saying with him kind of controlling things, kind of like an old time style um, movie studio. And but you know, from my perspective, I'm seeing it as like, oh man, he's like he's he's like Stan Lee. You know, he's he's creating the Marvel universe. That's that's kind of how I look like. So I definitely agree with you.
0: There, I remember there were some questions of after. The big gamble for Kevin Feige and for Marvel movies, I guess, really was leading up to the first Avengers movie where you're making these individual movies. Then you've got this big, massive superhero team up where they're all in the same movie and nobody had ever tried that before. And that was such a huge hit that then, okay, everyone says, all right, now they know what they're doing. But there were even questions after that. I remember at the time of people saying, well, now that they've got this superhero team up, massive hit, are the individual movies afterwards, they may not be as popular. There were some people saying, well, after you've got them all in the Avengers, no one's going to want to go and see another Captain America movie if all the other characters aren't around, or another Thor movie if all of the other team-ups aren't there. But the opposite ended up being true, which I think is what Feige sensed in terms of um, how the movies could work, and they're they're probably the Stan Lee influence, as you mentioned as well, where what Feige, I think, figured, and what he proved to be correct about, is the big team-ups ended up just being a really big promotional um tie in for the individual characters so that the after the first Avengers movie the next Thor movie and the next Captain America movie those were even more successful than the original Thor movie and the original Captain America movie so the sequels just had a, an even bigger audience after the team up movie as opposed to what some people were saying of oh well once you team them up everyone's just going to want team ups and they're not going go to want to want
1: go And what the and what he ended up doing that was similar to to what Lee was doing was he he kind of he, he set up you, you had the first Iron Man movie, which I really like a lot. It's an excellent movie. Um, and then you had Captain America um, and Thor. And you were mentioned the Hulk before also. And I don't even know if he was the producer of that or if he had any control of that. But those none of the Marvel characters, other Marvel characters, appeared in any of those films. And it wasn't, as you said, until the Avengers. And when the Avengers became this huge hit, the subsequent movies afterwards of Captain America and Iron Man and Thor... Um, The other characters, you're seeing the other characters appear. You know, maybe not all of them, but some of them are. I mean, the last Captain America movie, which I actually thought was very good, was uh, Captain America Civil War. That was almost like an Avengers movie. It was, yeah. They put them all, just about all in there, except Thor and the Hulk. So, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think DC has a lot to learn from what Marvel's done as far as their movies go. Wonder Woman, which I haven't seen, but I've heard great things about, yeah, is, is, right, is, yeah. is, is, is a really move in the right direction. The Nolan films, in my opinion, really, especially The Dark Knight, um, are the epitome of comic book-based, uh, comic book character superhero movies. Uh, I think they're just, I think they're brilliant. I think they're just fantastic.
0: That was definitely great. I think with with DC, what they didn't do originally was they didn't quite copy the way Feige was the overseer of all the Marvel movies. They didn't quite have anyone at DC who was doing that. They kind of let Zack Snyder produce all of them, but that was someone who's involved in the production, regardless of what you think of him as director or whatever. He was down there on the sets with the producing. So they didn't have someone who was a level up, who was overseeing everything. But then they did switch to that just last year. They brought in um,
1: one of them is Jeff Johns, right? who's the head of DC Comics. Jeff Johns, that was yeah. the best move that they made because Jeff yeah. Johns is a great was a great is a great comic book writer, and he's actually writing. He's still writing stuff right now, and he he's actually the brain behind DC's very successful rebirth characters that were had their base back to the way they were back in the. 70s, 80s um, when there was really strong storytelling and it was, it's not as dark. I'm not saying that they're not dark at all but it's not so dark because Watchmen and The Dark Knight Returns had, although both great series and in my opinion Watchmen is the greatest comic book series ever. It's as close to comic books we'll ever get to literature um, and that I've ever seen. But they really darkened the tone of all comic books, Marvel, DC, everything. And it's a copycat industry, and they were successful and critically successful. So everybody copied, copied that. And what Jeff Johns decided to do was, I'm going to make these superheroes that people will like again. And, you know, uh, villains that people won't like, you know, but really good stories, uh, or well-rounded good stories with good art. And people had a lot of doubt. Um, This happened a year ago, and DC was far behind Marvel in sales. Well, it's a critical and financial success, and DC has now either overtaken Marvel in sales or they are almost neck and neck. And that hadn't been seen in many, many years, probably 15, 20 years since anything like that had happened. And now what is Marvel doing? They're doing the exact same thing. They're going to reboot their entire their their entire line of comics, come this fall, and call Marvel Legacy. And it's basically the exact same thing that DC decided to do as far as their tone. They're changing the tone and making it a more friendly tone for these for these stories. Um, so I think it's going to have what Jeff Johns taking over. I think it's going to have that kind of influence. Um, on the movies and I think the first thing you saw was Wonder Woman being like that and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the Batman series and they've just hired the director of the Planet of the Apes films which I've actually never seen but he seems to be a guy who he talked about I want to make Batman a noir character I want a noir trilogy that's what he specifically said I want to do a a three movie trilogy and it's all noir based and I want Batman to be a detective again So that sounds good to me.
0: As we wrap this up, I guess I want to take in this segment just a chance, being from an Israeli family originally and talking about the Wonder Woman movie, there have been a million different ways that people have pronounced, or should I say mispronounced, the name of the star actress of Wonder Woman, who is herself Israeli. So let me just educate all the listeners here on how to say it. Um, My Hebrew is not fluent at all. I spoke it when I was a little kid, and I don't really speak it now, but I do know how to pronounce it properly. So the actress's name pronounced properly is Gal Gadot. And um, as long as you don't say Gadot or Gadot, which I keep hearing, those are both terrible. Or Gal for her first name, that's also really bad. So <laughs> the proper pronunciation in is a little hard for uh, if you don't speak that language. But if you say her first name is Gal, like Hall or Call, then that's pretty close. And if you rhyme her last name with Boat, so if you say Gadot, then that's not so bad. So uh, your friendly neighborhood podcast host giving you a little pronunciation lesson there. and the sport that was most commonly portrayed in war movies over all of the sports, which was, of course, boxing. So, Michael, you've been into boxing since you were um, a very young boy uh, from a family connection. So uh, tell us a bit about that with your dad's experience as a boxer.
1: Uh, Yeah, my father um, was um, both uh, amateur and professional boxer. He had about 10 professional fights, uh, all <clears throat> before he enlisted into the Navy. He also fought in the Navy. Uh, so he kind of passed down that love of boxing to me. Uh, I definitely caught on to it. And luckily, I kind of grew up in the in the 70s during a really golden age of boxing uh, with you had Ali and Frazier, Foreman um, and Roberto Duran, um, uh, eventually Sugar Ray Leonard and going into the 80s also uh it was just a great time to be a boxing fan so uh it was easy for me to kind of be obsessed and love boxing
0: so watching those did you watch those fights with your dad and would he give you all the tips like oh this guy doesn't know what he's doing or oh look this guy oh really, yeah really good at uh his oh
1: yeah i heard i heard i heard bomb a lot from my father <laughs> <laughs> right what a bum! <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, he 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 definitely. I watched all the fights with him, and he, you know, he had his definite opinion on, on, on certain fighters, on who his favorite fighters were, and and yeah, it had a heavy influence on me. It's like who he really liked ended up who who I uh, I also liked a lot too.
0: So let's go through uh, let's go through another top list here, which is your all time top five boxing movies, which has a heavy noir tilt to it as well. At your number five is from the '60s, right? Requiem for a Heavyweight.
1: Right, uh, and written by Rod Serling. I really love the movie, and I've seen the teleplay with Jack Palance, and I prefer the movie, which is much darker and has a much darker ending. Uh, and just fantastic performances by uh, Anthony Quinn, uh, Jackie Gleason, Mickey Rooney, and, and and Julie Harris. The movie also is just filled with uh, some fantastic performances uh, Cameos from great of great fighters, uh, Jack Dempsey, Barney Ross, Willie Pep, and the movie begins. Came out in 1962. Begins with Cassius Clay, is the one who is fighting, and you're seeing it through um, Anthony Quinn's eyes as uh, Mount Rivera, the fighter he's being beaten to a pulp by cassius clay in the ring and you're just seeing it through and it's i, I love that segment how you it's it's his it's his uh, you're seeing it through his eyes as as Ali, cassius clay at the time is uh, is beating him so um uh, all those elements the 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 fighters serling's beautiful script and how dark it was and it's definitely noir in my opinion uh it's it's just a fantastic movie and, and it really, and it really, it really shows that seedier, the really seedy, seamy side of, of of boxing, which is which is there. It is, it is no doubt. Boxing is the noir of all sports. Yeah, that's the sport that most
0: <laughs> fits in with the themes of uh, corruption, darkness, and uh, all sorts of other stuff. And that also ties in with uh, your next one of your favorites, which is uh, from the classic noir period with John Garfield, right? Uh, Body and Soul.
1: Right. Um, and which is, I mean, Body and Soul, I mean, some people, I know some people think it's their it's their favorite boxing film. And it's definitely you know, close to the top for me. Uh, I think Garfield's fantastic in it. And he's Garfield, John Garfield's personal favorite of mine. Um, and this is one of his best films. And he he was uh, it's it was done under his film company. Um, and the movie is loosely based on a great Jewish boxer, Barney Ross. James Wong Howe did the cinematography. He did the fight scenes on roller skates uh, so that he could move around the ring a lot. So it's got really fantastic fight scenes. Um, terrific um, supporting performance by Canada Lee um, as the fighter that uh, Garfield ends up beating and uh he ends up canada lee's character ends up being a sparring partner and helping john garfield's character kind of rise to the top and um but an interesting element of this movie is that as all the people who were blacklisted in that film um unfortunately uh, you had garfield canada lee and revere and abraham polonsky who wrote the screenplay were all blacklisted uh, but it's a great boxing film and it's for me, it's the best of the kind of rags, the, the rags to riches to rags story of the, the fighter who gets everything he wants, who's poor, gets everything he wants and kind of becomes corrupt. Uh, in the end, you know, Garfield's character doesn't, he redeems himself in a way, but, um, I prefer Body and Soul over um, The Champion, which is stars Kirk Douglas. I, I definitely prefer Body and Soul over that.
0: The next one up on your list is a more modern one, Fat City.
1: Right, based on Leonard Gardner's fantastic novel. Um, maybe, arguably, the greatest boxing novel ever written. Um, and I think it's uh, my personal favorite of John Huston's later films. I think it's uh, right there with um, Man Who Would Be King. Um, It's just, it's, it's, and he did a great job. And it's uh, really about young fighters who are ascending and older fighters who are descending. Great. It's, it's great. I highly recommend it. It's, it's one of the best boxing movies ever made. And I also recommend uh, people pick up uh, Leonard Gardner's novel. This is fantastic. And
0: then next up. Certainly one of the most famous modern boxing movies, Raging Bull. It's,
1: it's, I think it's an amazing movie. I know that some people think it's the greatest boxing movie ever. Pretty close for me. Um, it comes in second. But uh, geez, Scorsese did this a uh, fantastic job. And to think that he knew nothing about boxing, had no interest in boxing. And it was De Niro had to keep bothering him and pestering him who had read Jake Lamotta's autobiography uh Raging which was titled Raging Bull and bug Scorsese to no end till Scorsese finally did it and boy what a fantastic job i mean it's everything in that movie just rings so well the the fact that it was shot in black and white the scenes that were shot the color scenes the home movies which are great it's got some great moments in that movie uh that really capture boxing too when uh, Jake Lamotta is entering the uh, the arena in Detroit to fight Marcel Serdam for the middleweight title. And it's this fantastic tracking shot uh, that Scorsese sets up as Jake is making his ring walk with his um, trainer and his cut man and his brother. And uh, it just ca- that really captures that moment of boxing glory, you know, when you're walking up to the ring to, to fight for the title. So it was that's terrific. And, you know, what's interesting is, like, the, really the fight scenes in that movie don't take up that much time, um, but they're stunning. And, of course, it's a fantastic story, too. Um, very dark uh, story about, about Lamada and his life and how he, how he affected the people around him.
0: The, the fight scenes in that movie, a lot of them are really stylized like the with the audio and the angles and the way it's uh, the characters are isolated which i guess is a reflection of Scorsese wasn't really a boxing person but yeah uh, to say the least knows about filmmaking so he brought all that the different sensibilities he has to the just intensity of those
1: fight scenes oh definitely and and you know he 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 they're all correct and i mean they're you know he he got all the fights Right, and he got the moments right, but there's definitely style, a highly stylized moments in it that definitely it. I think it adds to it. I'm sure there are boxing purists who watch it and say, "Oh, well, that's not." You could, I'm a boxing purist, and I, I all of these movies definitely don't have total and complete realism like like a like a like a, a legitimate fight. But this movie, all that stylization really works so well.
0: And then we can go into the number one on your list, which is indeed one of the great classic noirs, which is The Setup.
1: Yeah, and you know, The Setup is my favorite film noir of all time, too. Uh, And Robert Ryan's performance in it is my favorite noir performance of all time. I think everything rings perfect on that film. Um, And it's such a tight, lean, mean film. Um, And Robert Wise did such a great job. You'd know watching it that an expert in editing had to have directed that film because it's so tight. Robert Ryan and Audrey Totter are so great in it. And the fight scenes are fantastic. The way they captured the crowd too. Um, That's a nod to both wise and the screenwriter um, because they did a fantastic job. Uh, And the movie looks like a work of art work of black and white art. It's, it's just it's gritty, but it is beautiful to look at and the fight scenes are amazing. And yeah, like I said, the, the the performances by, uh, by Ryan and Todd are, are, are outstanding. You usually
0: don't get much material in boxing movies about the crowd, individual people in the crowd, but that's really the best example of it. They keep going back to these great characters who are different kinds of fans or reacting to the fights in different ways.
1: Yeah, and the screenwriter said that he ba- that those were based on, on actual people that he saw at the fights. He would go over and over to over and over to, to the fights, and there was a the blind guy who had his companion who was describing the fight to him. That was that was somebody who would go to the fights. Um, the other thing that Wise captured so beautifully was, and it, this is this unfolds towards the beginning of the movie, is uh, the, all the scenes inside the dressing room with the fighters interacting with one another. It's really beautifully done.
0: So let's wrap up now with your latest project, which is combining design as we talked about with boxing as well, which is called Ringside Seat Magazine. So tell us a bit
1: about that. Yeah, I decided that I'd I'd always I'd always wanted to do um, a boxing magazine. After working on Noir City, I decided to that I wanted to do a boxing magazine and kind of like base it on Noir City in the sense that um, the way the production is done um, and the fact it's a PDF and um, it's interactive with videos and so so forth, that um, I wanted to give this a try. And uh, I approached Eddie uh, about this because, of course, his father was um, one of the great boxing columnists. And like myself, you know, he grew up around boxing. I mean, boxing was important. Um, and he, so he has a love of the sport. So I approached him about it, and I also approached uh, Nigel Collins, who was the former editor of The Ring magazine um, and is in the Boxing Hall of Fame. And they kind of helped me get it started and get it going. We were able to attract some of the, I can proudly say, some of the best writers uh, writing about boxing. We created our, our debut issue, and we put it up on uh, Kickstarter, and we actually got to meet our goal. We are now moving on to our second issue. Um, so it was a success, I'm very happy to say. Uh, I didn't know if we would be a one-and-done thing, but I'm very happy to, to see the, the fact that people want to see a really well-written boxing magazine, and that's the idea behind this, is that, you know, Noir City is all about great writing. Um, that's important the quality of the writing is important and of course and i think the quality of the the look of the magazine the the design and the graphics are important and that's where we're influenced by north city for, with ringside seat and i and people have taken to that and they really do want a well-written intelligent boxing magazine and we've t- we kind of subtitled ourselves the Part of the sweet science and um, we are always going to write about boxing also in movies and art and music um, so there'll be a little bit of that always in all the magazines and uh, so I'm, I'm really proud of it uh, that, that we were able to get some success and that we're moving along and for me the most important part of it is just is doing it. I love doing it. I love I love working on North City when I'm doing it. I love actually creating and working on it. And it's the same thing with Ringside Seat. So, uh, if anybody is interested, uh, they can go and check out our website. And there's a you can download a free preview of the magazine in PDF form. Uh, and if you're familiar with North City, you'll be very you know you'll look at this and you'll say it's very much like North City because it's got the video links to fights. Um, that are being discussed in, in the articles. And it, the website is ringsideseatmag.com. I was going to say, yeah, the layout does look very
0: familiar for Noir City <laughs> subscribers when I got the first issue. Uh, no doubt where it was, uh, what approach you were taking to it, where it was coming from. Okay, so I think we'll wrap things up there. So, Michael Cronenberg, thanks so much for joining us here on Noir Talk.
1: Thank you so much, Hagai. I really appreciate it. <laughs>
0: Thanks again to Michael Cronenberg for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back with another episode next month, and until then, thanks for joining us here at More Talk.